Hi everyone, it's Gracie with Self Care with Gracie. Welcome back to the podcast. I am very honored to have Maria Leonard Olson on the podcast with us today. Hi, Maria. Hi, I'm so happy to be part of all the work that you're doing. Thank you. I'm I'm so happy that you are here. I I have your bio in front of me, and I'm like. I don't even know how to present you. You've just done so many things. So I'm going to give like a like a best of from your your bio, which is that I'm you... a lifelong dilettante. That's all you have to yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you've also just wrote a book, The 50 After 50, reframing the next chapter of your life. And I was reading your bio like, oh, my gosh, like that's the great thing about living for a while in your life is that you get to do a lot of stuff. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So, well, it's interesting. You start your bio by saying that you're a biracial woman whose parents were forbidden by law to marry in their home state of Maryland in the early 1960s. And that's, I want to get into that because that sounds like a big piece of your story. And from there, you're the mother of two children, a lawyer, a journalist, an author of two children's books, and the, the, your latest book, 50 After 50, Reframing the Next Chapter of Your Life, which was recently published. You lead writing and empowerment retreats for women. You are the co-host of the Inside Out radio show on 89.3, I love that radio station, in Washington, D.C. And you are a speaker, you're a teacher, you are uh, really, it seems like your work is about empowering people. So I'm excited to learn more. And I'd, I'd love, yeah, I'd love to start by, tell, tell us more of your story. Like, how did, how did you get to do the work that you do and, and where, where have you found your passion in your life? Well, the universe conspired to throw three curveballs at me at age 50. One was I got divorced. One was I got sober from alcoholism. And the third was that I became an empty nester. And I was living alone for the first time in my life, feeling sorry for myself and rudderless. So my gift to myself at age 50 was to try 50 new things in my 50th year to try to um, explore the contours of how I wanted this new chapter in my life to be. I basically had to change everything about my life, pretty much. So um, in doing that, I realized I had been living according to other people's expectations for most of my life. And I allowed myself to explore so many different things that brought me to a place of much more authenticity. So my passion has become writing and speaking about the things that I write about. And today I was, I ran into a friend and she said she had read my book and she's doing one of the things in my book that she, that had never occurred to her and that it's making her life better. And that's my passion. If I can make anyone's life just a little bit better by giving them a different way of looking at things or an idea that may not have occurred to them, that's where I get this jolt of joy and feeling that I'm on the right path. I've made a difference. That's awesome. Yeah, there is a really incredible power that comes from realizing that that like we can be a change agent and that we can use our presence for a place of, of helping people see the world differently. It, it's definitely. 
Mm-hmm. It sounds like being a mother is, is a really big part of your experience and you've written a couple of children's books as well. Uh, how, has, how has that informed your life and your experience? Well, the first line of my bio, as you pointed out, is my having grown up as a biracial woman, a person of color. I was the only dark-skinned person in my D.C. suburb, Uh, in my school, in my neighborhood, I always felt that I stuck out. And kids can be cruel. I was made fun of for looking different than other people. And my mother was an immigrant from the Philippines and wasn't very, quote, American at all. I felt like I didn't have a lot of guidance on American culture or much of much guidance from my parents at all because they divorced when I was six and I became a latchkey kid and it was kind of a complicated complicated childhood so I always had from that pain a desire to give my children the best childhood possible and have all the things that I wish I had had growing up like a mom at home baking cookies when I arrived home from school. (laughs) Um, So I designed what I thought was a Norman Rockwellian life for my kids. And it turned out that half the stuff I did, they didn't even like or want. But I was filling a hole within me uh, in my parenting. My first children's book is called Mommy, Why Is Your Skin So Brown? Because most people thought I was the nanny, uh, especially of my son, who has blue eyes and he was blonde for his first year. He's much lighter skinned than I am. And people make assumptions based on how someone looks. So even the dentist and the jamboree gym- teacher and other nannies would assume that I was his dark-skinned nanny. So that book was a consciousness-raising piece that several preschools used to try to uh, make people more aware that they shouldn't um, let their curiosity overwhelm their manners and make assumptions based on how someone looks. And it was also a way for me to explain to my kids why people assumed I was their nanny. So that is why I did that one. And my other children's book is called Healing for Hallie. And that one is about the importance of expressing your feelings because I kept my feelings bottled up for so long and realize now how harmful that was to me as a child and as an adult. So I mostly write about things that are bothering me or things that I'm processing and both help me and in the hope that I can help someone else who's experiencing similar feelings. I always think that's such a fruitful place to write from, that the writing from what is felt most specific in my struggle always feels like it opens up some universal vein in this really interesting way. I agree. And I have been a, someone who journals for most of my life. And that is such a healing exercise and a way for me to process things that are going on. 
What what was the conversation like with your children, and what has the conversation been like with other people you've shared your first book about uh, teaching your children about racism and the people's perceptions of race? Well, I wrote an adults book actually that is called "Not the Cleaver Family: The New Normal in American Modern American Families," and it explores how. Only a generation ago, interracial marriage was illegal in 16 states, including Maryland and Virginia. And my kids were incredulous when they heard that. They could not believe that grandma and grandpa could not get married in Maryland in the 60s. Similarly, my son, who is gay, when I say to him, your kids will not believe that you couldn't get married until 2013, that it was illegal. So there's been a rapid change in the face of the modern American family. So for my children, I wanted them to never feel ashamed like I did of being different and in their appearance and to celebrate differences and to be aware that there are many people in the world that make judgments based on skin color appearance um, many other things. So I wanted my kids to be aware of that. Um, a funny thing that happened, which I hope isn't too racy for me to to say on on air, is the Filipino nannies in my neighborhood came up to me and said, oh, you're this boy, he's so cute. He was only about maybe one, one and a half. I was pushing him around in my all-white neighborhood which was probably a mistake to raise my kids in a white neighborhood. But anyway, <laughs> so I'm pushing him along in the stroller. Filipino nannies walk up and say, oh, he's so cute. And then they said, are you live in? And I said, uh, yeah, and I'm sleeping with the dad. <laughs> and then I became a pariah of the nannies of Chevy Chase, Maryland. <laughs> but I was able to see some humor in the situation after I spoke to so many other uh, non-traditional families and heard much worse stories because the history of racism in our culture has always been more harshly directed towards the African-American population. So it put in perspective to me, for me, the microaggressions that really were not a big deal. I mean, I still want to raise awareness, but... They weren't nearly as harsh as what my other, especially African-American friends, had experienced. Wow. Thanks not for... sure if I answered your question. I think I kind of... Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Yeah, well, I, I, it's interesting because this is, you know, a self-care podcast. And when I first started doing it, I was all about more like tips and personal ideas of self-care. And as I've gone deeper into the rabbit hole of what self-care really is, I'm like, oh, self-care is about having conversations like what you're talking about, of like with the conversations that are going to bring up uncomfortable subject matter that are going to make people really have to question their beliefs and their perceptions challenging people being strong enough in yourself to be able to hold the space for your children's understanding of this and often like even if people do have the consciousness they they don't often have the skill set to be able to have difficult conversations like what you're talking about so i appreciate just hearing your experience and and i love your experience with those other nannies i think that's hilarious 
And I love your expansive view of what self-care is because I feel like self-care has become kind of a, uh, I don't know, a, a throwaway phrase for some people. And self-care is much more than just getting a manicure or massage or something like that. So I'm glad that you're putting out into the world the work that you do. Thank you. It's, it, it is. It's interesting just to, to keep going down the rabbit hole, as I, I always say. But it, it, what I've started to realize is that it, it, it's like if society is setting us up that not everybody can take care of themselves equally in society, then like self-care doesn't like the surface level of things doesn't really matter. And so it's, it is like, we can make a personal change. And I really believe in the personal changes that we can make and how that can show up to create a different kind of society and world that we live in, but that our self-care doesn't exist in a bubble. Like it has to, it, it interacts in context with what's happening around us. That's so interesting. It sounds like you've really gone deeply into what self-care means for you. Well, yeah. And well, and, and when I hear your story, too, because you talk about getting sober after you turn 50, like, I, I think it's like moments like that, where we lose what we think that we really need in life. Like, those are the moments where I've learned the most about self-care. Like when I, I went through a few years ago, a relationship that I thought I was going to get married to someone, we lived together, we broke up, he moved out, my dad got cancer and passed away. And it was just this period of like everything kind of falling apart in my life. But wow, that was that is a lot. It was a lot. And it was undoubtedly like the moment in life I learned most about self-care. Mm. Because mm. I thank I, God you had some tools like that. Well, what about that moment of life for you when, you know, 50 years old, losing what you thought you had to secure yourself in your life? What did you learn about self-care during that period? Well, I am a big advocate for the 12 step programs because me they provide a roadmap for being a good human and for practicing self-care in various ways so I felt that I did not have good boundaries before I entered a 12-step program I didn't really know what that meant I was a chronic people pleaser and subjugated my needs and desires for other people. That was just what I did. And I wanted people to like me. Now I accept that not everyone is going to like me and that anything life throws at me has the potential to teach me something. So yes, going through the divorce and getting sober was really painful. But now on the other side, five years later, I'm the happiest I've ever been. I feel like I am living a life true to my values. I actually know more who I am and I know how to set proper boundaries. And I don't always say yes anymore. I don't always try to please other people, which is a huge sea change for me. Um, when someone asks me, for instance, if I want to go to lunch, I don't, I will, Maria 1.0 would always say yes. Maria 2.0 practices the pause. I ask myself, do I really want to do this or am I just saying yes because I want that person to like me? Is this an activity that is going to unnecessarily deplete me or would it be fun? 
or do I have other things I'd rather do with my time? So while my sponsor in um, my 12-step program says no is a complete sentence, I'm not able to say just no, but I am able to say no, I have another commitment. And the other commitment can be just to myself, to putting my feet up, meditating, uh, reading a book, whatever it is, it's a commitment. And I don't owe other people an explanation of what that commitment is. Yes, no is a complete sentence. That is a really, really good slogan to carry carry forward in life. I can you say it though? I can't just say no and walk away. No, I'm, I'm like a wordy person. I, I always have to, when I edit my writing, I go back and pick out like half of what I first say. So yeah, I don't want anyone listening out there to be like, I, that's not me. And I like something's wrong with me because I can't just say no, because it's, it's really hard. Like what you're talking about, Maria, I think it's profound and I, I agree. It's so healing to be able to do it. And it can just bring up so many different emotions for all of us to, to feel the changing pattern and to feel the no. And so if like you need a few more words after no, that's totally fine. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I don't think I'll ever get to a place where I can just be so stark in my answers. <laughs> because I think we have to make it authentic for us too. And that, and that that's what I found for me that I, I need to... I need to be myself in my recovery and my self-care and that like somebody else's way of doing things doesn't always work, but it's helpful to hear what other people do because it does inspire what, what I need to do too. Yes. That's a very good point that it has to be authentic to me. You're right. Not what there's no one size fits all in life. <laughs> no, no. Well, I am curious about boundary setting because this is a big one. I think of like, people that listen to this podcast, my clients, myself of, of struggling because we don't want to discipline other people. We don't want to hurt other people. But what do we do if there is somebody in our life that we just kind of always want to say no to? And we realize that even though we really love this person, it's, it's really hard because they are taking more energy than they're giving or it's, it's just not a good setup. Do you have any wisdom for how to set boundaries in that context? Right. Well, I try very hard to be intentional about who I have in my life. And so I surround myself with people who bring out the best in me. And I have friends who, not through any fault of their own, but they bring out insecurities in me. And so I limit my time with those people. So I surround myself with people who help me to be my best version. And then the people that I can't avoid who are negative energy, I try to look at, at them with detachment and love and to realize that everyone's reality is different. There is a Rumi, the poet Rumi has a pretty profound meditation slash poem about if we picture people as trees, some trees get everything they need, sunlight, adequate water, enough space and soil, while other trees grow gnarled and withered and don't get enough of what they need to thrive. And this gives me compassion for other people to realize that everyone carries their own burdens and that that person who is giving off negative energy 
may have had some real pain in their lives and been deprived of something they really need. So to look at people in situations with um, detachment, love, and curiosity, rather than to take anything anyone says personally, has been a, a huge healing method by which I set emotional boundaries with people. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I really feel that when you speak about it. It's. Do you know the, the Four Agreements, the Don Miguel Ruiz book? Yes, I love that book. And I was lucky enough to go on one of his retreats in Mexico. He is such a healer. And his his messages are so simple. And even though I read that book years ago, it resonates with me every day that uh, we shouldn't take things personally. We should be impeccable with our words. We should do our best and our best can change every day. Yes, he is an incredible teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for those who haven't read his book, he gives, it's a, from the Toltec tradition, one of the indigenous yeah. populations in, in uh, Central America and Mexico. And uh, it's four agreements you make. The first one is be impeccable with your word, like have integrity with what you're saying. Don't take anything personally. Don't have any expectations and always do your best. Are those the four? I believe so. And that is also where I got what I said a few minutes ago about everyone having a different reality. Everyone, we're just a product of our experiences and no two experiences are the same. And that was such a, uh, I don't know, an eye-opening thing for me, even though for some people that might be obvious for me. It just didn't, I never dwelled on that, that everybody carries rocks of pain in the backpack of life that they carry around. And it's our job to try individually, however works best for us, to try to drop those rocks of things that hold us back and continue to harm us. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's something that I see with self-care that I don't think self-care is about making your life experience like prettier, even though it can be, mm-hmm. you know, I think once we start to live with more integrity, things naturally kind of clean themselves up if there are messes that are just draining our energy. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's more that it gives us capacity to hold more and it gives us a framework that can hold like a space for our identity to change. Because I think about those rocks and I'm like, we, we don't hold them because we like holding them. It's like we hold them because we mm-hmm. don't know what life would be like without holding them. That like we've always held that really heavy rock and we're not sure who we are. And we and when we're falling apart, we kind of need something to hold us together. So having something like yeah. a 12-step program, like, like it's really helpful because the support of the community, the actual 12 steps themselves, the program literature, all of those, they can, can kind of hold us together when we need to do the deep internal work and drop the rocks and reform a whole identity. Too. So I look at self-care is just something that can hold us so we can do the deep work and, and really figure out what we want to be carrying in this life and what we're ready to let go of, too. You are a very wise woman. And although I can't remember if we met in person, you seem a, that you look like you're younger than I am. So kudos to you for figuring this out so early. 
Oh, <laughs> thanks. Well, again, it's it's life life experiences. These uh, these moments in life are never quite fun when they're happening. And just to speak to anyone out there who is going through a less fun moment of life, where you're, like all the stuff is coming up and you're kind of being asked to drop the rock, like it's it, there is healing on the other side of it. But it is it is like making the choice to to get help for yourself. And um, I'd, I'd love to ask you more about that period of time when you were you know, going through the divorce and deciding that you needed to go to get some more support around addiction. Like, what was that like for you to, to seek help and, and what came up for you in that process? Yes, even though I was very much a people pleaser, I was also someone who didn't like to ask for help. I went to rehab and I will never forget this exercise they made us do. They blindfolded us and put us in a maze, and they said there's only one way out of the maze. So I was the last person out of the maze. I was thrashing around saying, I can do this. I know I can do this. And people were getting out of the maze, and that just made me dig my heels in further and try harder to get out of the maze. So finally... Uh, after I don't know how long, maybe even two hours of trying to get out of this maze, I figured it out and I raised my hand and the only way out was to ask for help. Hmm. And what they were trying to teach us was that help is a sign of courage, not weakness. And they said that those with advanced degrees are typically the last people out of the <laughs> maze because they think they know how to do things. They think they are self-sufficient and don't need help and uh, are stubborn and try to think their way out of addiction. But you can't think, think your way out of an illness. This is something that requires a lot more than just thought. In fact, you're supposed to give up your will to something bigger than yourself, whether it's the power of the group in the 12-step room or your higher power could be God or whatever it is, the universe, whatever is your higher power. But the point is something bigger than yourself. And until I was ready to actually let go and let God let go of the outcome and stop trying to control everything, I was going to stay sick. And my relationships were going to suffer as they did. So becoming sober, while painful, really taught me so much about what was holding me back from living a life true to my values and how receiving help is not a sign of weakness at all, but a sign of self-care. When you know your limits, that's also um, self-knowledge and important. And I wasn't willing to go there before getting sober. Thank you for sharing that that story and that experience. I, sure. I think about like what are what a rock to drop. Just going back to that metaphor of like I can do this because there are, there are so many things, especially if we grow up like in an, any kind of dysfunctional situation. I think like early on in my life, I was like, I'm going to hold on to this rock because like my my own will and my own intelligence 
is what has, is going to keep me safe and it's what has kept me safe. And then for me and my own healing process to realize there was a point where in order for me to get better, I had to actually drop the thing that had always kept me safe feeling. Yes. Like, that's an intense moment of life. It is. I can completely relate. I also was very adept at compartmentalizing my feelings and pretending that painful things didn't happen. But until I was able to actually look at trauma in the eye, talk about it, allow other women to bear witness to my pain, then it was always going to pop up in unexpected ways and affect me, the trauma of my childhood, which included um, sexual assault. And I wasn't willing to talk about that for decades. So I kept it inside and pretended it in a way that it didn't happen. But in adulthood, it was like holding a beach ball underwater. I could do it, but it took a lot of mental energy and it would pop up when I was triggered by something or situation or person who didn't necessarily mean to trigger me, but that, that shame and that fear and the hypervigilance would come rushing back and until I actually went through the process of dealing with my sexual assault uh, and abuse and rape that happened early in my life, I could never really release its grip on me. Of course, yes. It's, it's really such deep work for us to be doing as individuals to be facing that trauma. I think it's, it's like one in three women have experienced some kind of sexual assault in their life. Yes. And I was lucky enough to speak at the National March to End Rape Culture last April. And after I spoke, uh, I was surrounded by young women who said, I can't believe you said that on stage. I haven't told anyone. And so now I get great joy in knowing that I am helping other women have the courage to let someone be bear witness to their pain. So I am able to turn a force of shame and pain and negativity into a force for good in some way by helping other women. And that has helped me heal and made me feel like I have found one of my purposes in life. Yes. Oh, it's so beautiful. I, I feel it. And, and it's really like, like it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation around empowerment. Of yeah. Like, what does that empowerment really mean? And I, I think we can use that word kind of like how we use self-care in a really superficial way of like, oh, get empowered. <laughs> like yeah. Use yeah. it to sell a sports drink or something. But I think what, what I'm hearing from you is that real empowerment is about going deep down into your own pain and, and then like, coming up to the surface and helping others by, by being vulnerable. I agree. And I also think it's important, not everyone is ever going to feel comfortable getting on stage and talking about such personal matters. Everyone heals in a different way. But I think each of us has to find an outlet of a, a therapist or a trusted friend or a mentor, someone in your life that you can 
fully allow to be present and witness what's inside of you that is causing you pain. Yeah, that's that is some real self care you're talking about right there. Like getting mm. getting support, and that I think that is for a lot of us out there who are like, yeah, I'll go for the run. I'll I'll like eat the kale. Like I'll do these like <laughs> levels of self care. Like that you're like, no, you're asking me to like talk about all this stuff I've been working so hard to keep secret with other people. And and your story is such a testament for like the healing power within that. I think that it is easier for women to be vulnerable because our society still has, I don't know, pressure for men, for instance, not to cry in public or to be strong. And I'm hoping with the next generation that we relieve men of that expectation and allow them to, to express their feelings in a healthy way. That makes me sad for uh, the young men of today. I think it's changing, but it's still there. It's, it was interesting because you, you talk about being at the National March to End Rape Culture, and it made me think of an article that I read about how nurturance culture is the opposite of rape culture and, mm. and about how actually for nurturance culture to really like take and, and for men, men have to teach it to each other. Like women can't teach it to men. And most men learn about nurturance from women. <laughs> So, oh, that's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I, yeah. my, my partner Micah is a man, and he, yeah, he's in recovery, and he's he's like a really vulnerable, nurturing man. And I was like, well, where did you learn about nurturing? And he's like, oh, from like twelve step rooms, and like really, like from yeah. like twelve step recovery of like the men in that program being strong enough to be able to show affection with each other, and show support and show their emotions. And I was like, well, would you teach it to other men? And he like closed down. He was like. I don't know. He's like, that's really vulnerable. And so even like, you know, my man who is so strong and so vulnerable, like it's, I think it takes like a whole new vulnerability for men to start to teach this to each other. And I'm, I'm not quite sure how to support men in doing it. Cause it does on some level feel like their work and I really want to support them. But I've, I've really been a little puzzled when it comes to men's self-care and how to, how to help men. Yes. And I think because the 12-step rooms create such a safe space, that is the only place I have seen men vulnerable and really sharing from their heart. And I agree. I hope that someday there will be more venues for men to access that part of themselves. It's so much healthier. It's so much healthier. It's Yeah, like the patriarchy doesn't help the men who are benefiting from it spiritually like they might get more resources but they're suffering spiritually inside and most of the time have no idea they're even holding all these huge rocks agreed so, yeah it, i think this is the question where i'm i, I feel a lot of tension around of like what do, what do we do to show up to be able to hold space for men to kind to do the the healing that i've seen a lot of women around me start to do and really do beautifully and now mm -hmm. like i think it's time for men to do it and we we need to help them i think Oh, I completely agree. Uh, my daughter is in her 20s, and she has a very, um, a boyfriend who seems to be, allow himself to be vulnerable. And that makes me so happy for her that she has someone who is not afraid to speak from the heart about his feelings. That's great. That must make. Hopefully, the next generation. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the whole like Age of Aquarius thing. Have you heard of this before? From the 70s? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it comes from like... Uh, I mean, it was a song, wasn't yes. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, from Hair, the musical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it it comes from the kundalini tradition i believe and someone out there who's a kundalini person will probably get a lot of holes in what i'm saying but i think this is the gist of it that it's the idea is that we're moving into the age of aquarius right now and there were wow. a friend of mine who's doing a kundalini teacher training was telling me about it she's like oh in the age of aquarius they say that there are no secrets like that's a part of it there's instant communication this is some things that there people are no have been what? saying there are no secrets and I think about like the Me Too movement and just like the surfacing of so much right now. I'm like, oh, it's the like there, there oh. are fewer secrets than they used to be. It's hard to look at it all, but there are fewer secrets. And um, there's instant communication in the age of Aquarius. So this is this was being talked about before there was the Internet, but there's a lot more ability to communicate instantly. And then that there is a lessening of gender like polarity, that there's more of like a gender neutrality that happens. And it's interesting just to hear those three. And I think there were more that she talked about to be like, oh, I, I feel all of that happening. And that the age of Aquarius is a more um, yeah healing time for us. Well, that's encouraging. I hope that that is correct. I think there's a lot of discussion among young people about gender fluidity and that that might lead to more acceptance in our world. So I applaud that. Me too. Me too. I, I really look to this next generation with a lot of hope that they can help figure out some things that we're pretty stumped on. Yes, I do too. Well, I, I always like to ask this question of, of what self-care means to you. And I, you've just been through so much life and you're still continuing to live so much. So what have you learned about self-care for yourself? I think that because I am squarely in midlife now, at least according to actuarial tables, for me, I feel like the most precious commodity is time. And it's the one thing we can't buy or manufacture. And when it's gone, it's gone. And it's of uncertain duration. So for me, self-care is being very intentional every day about how I spend my time. Because I don't know how much I have left. So I choose very carefully in a way that I never did in the first four decades of my life. Every day I, ha I look at it as another 24 hours to write my story. How do I want to spend it today? So that is my primary uh, means of self-care. And within that very intentional space, I practice meditation every day. And it's not always sitting silent for 10 minutes or a half hour, an hour even. For me, meditation is taking deep cleansing breaths throughout the day to reset, to recenter. And it, I do a lot of walking meditation, even from my car to my office. I walk very slowly. I take very deep belly breaths and try to focus on my breathing so that I'm not worrying about the future or fretting about the past. I'm fully present when I walk into a situation so I would say living each day with intention and making meditation part of every day have been the biggest healing modalities for me 
that's what self-care means for me right now. I want to keep learning about self-care for the rest of my life and for things that bring me joy and things that um, help me to be a better version of myself. So I love hearing your podcast and different ways of looking at self-care. So I guess that and everything we've talked about for the last um, hour or so would be what I found out about myself and what I try very hard to practice every day. Yes. I love all of that. I, I love the idea of self-care as a respect for time too, of like, how are we using our time? And, mm-hmm. and I, I think before becoming a mother, I wouldn't have connected that to that as much. I think I just had a more like a uh, time, whatever. And now I'm like, I have an hour. (laughs) One hour before he wakes up from his nap. What am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of odd. Um, I've dreaded becoming an empty nester, but now I feel a freedom uh, that I didn't have before because I have so many fewer responsibilities to other people now. And it has opened a place for me to explore so much about what brings me joy in this life if I could go back uh, to when my children were younger I wish I could have been more present because I was always rushing 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 and not enjoying the moments so it's interesting what uh, self you've made me think hard about what self-care has meant to me at different stages in my life as well Completely. I think, I think it's really, it, it, yeah, it does change. I was just talking to another mom about, she's five kids and I was like, well, how has your self-care changed? And she was like, oh, when like my kids were really young, it was like my self-care was so physical. It was about like my food and my sleep. And she's like, as they've gotten older and they're teenagers and their uh, self-care has gotten so much more emotional. She's like, my self-care has gotten more emotional about like dealing with my mm-hmm. emotions. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's interesting how like maybe even what's happening in our life and what's being asked of us, like that will affect our practices of, of just being able to meet ourselves and let it change. And I think letting our self-care change as we evolve is really important because our habits that served you five years ago are different than the ones that serve you now, too. Yes, I agree. Mm. Well, Maria, it's it's been a real joy to connect with you and hear your story and hear about all the incredible work that you're doing. So for for people out there that want to know more and want to connect with you, how do people stay in touch? And it looks like you have some really exciting events coming up too. I'm looking at oh, your website. thank you. Yes. This, my website, first of all, is my name, Maria Leonard, L E O N A R D Olson, O L S E N.com, which has all the events that I'm doing and articles and this podcast hopefully will be on there. Um, and I have, the 50 after 50 Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram. I spell out the word 50 and after, and then the number 50. This Saturday, I will be at the Kensington Book Festival in Kensington, Maryland from 11 to 4. I'll have a table come by and say hi. And then on May 18th at 10.15, I will give a keynote speak or a featured author 
speaking event at the Gaithersburg Book Festival, which is one of the biggest book festivals in the greater Washington area. Uh, I also do private events for corporations and nonprofits. If anyone has a need for a motivational or healing speaker, please get in touch through my website. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thanks, and I hope I see you in person soon. Yeah, (laughs) I think we would have a lot to talk about. This has been a wonderful conversation. For those of you who are listening, I I invite you to reflect on what felt important for you and what brought things up for you. We we covered a lot of territory in this conversation of really looking at like what what does letting go of control mean at a certain point in inner healing and recovery, especially if there is any kind of like addiction in our history or anything that we're dealing with and what does that mean in such a profound form of self-care what does it mean to talk to our kids about issues like racism and and how do we frame these discussions so it actually is a form of self-care for everybody how do we address rape culture and and the self-care work that men need to do and how do we hold space for that and and so many other things so let let whatever it is be important for you and i invite you to journal or reflect in any way to keep your self-care process going um maria leonard olson she is she is a, a teacher a speaker she is a mother doing so many things so thank you again maria thank you so much gracie you're welcome all right bye everyone take care of yourselves Hi, this is Gracie with Beautiful Life Self-Care. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I hope you learned something new. If you want to connect more, then visit me at selfcarewithgracie.com. There you can sign up for my weekly newsletter where on Wednesday afternoons, I'll send you more self-care practices, more inspiration, and more opportunity to connect to a community of people who really care about really good self-care. Also, write me if you have any other questions or if you have ideas for future shows. My email address is selfcarewithgracie at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. And remember, keep putting yourself first and everything else will fall into place. Mm -hmm.